Seems to be taking me a little longer to get into the Christmas spirit this year. Uh, I don't know exactly what it is. I suspect maybe last year kind of threw off my threw off my my rhythm with Christmas. Last year was so different. 2020 was very different and different for all of us in the way we had to worship. The way we did Christmas Eve was different. Everything was different last year. You may remember last year I did something a little different. Uh, Last year I did what a lot of guys did and I grew out my COVID beard. Remember that? I grew out the COVID beard pretty much all year long and it got really, really long. And of course it was not the collar of this. It was a different collar and... uh, and then I did, I did the other thing that a lot of people did. I took up a hobby during COVID. I, I learned how to cook a little better. And you know, when you learn how to cook, uh, you, you got to eat. You got to eat what you cook. You can't just let it go to waste. And, and I found out that the 19 in COVID-19, that's for how many pounds you gain from being in lockdown. And somewhere around, somewhere around September last year, I looked at myself in the mirror And I said, you've gained a little extra weight and you have a long white beard. We cannot get any closer to Christmas looking like this. Because you know someone's going to say, I think you'll fit the suit this year. And you'll be riding on the back of the 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 fire truck or something. So so I did what just seemed like the most rational thing. I I shaved the beard. And then a lot of you didn't like the look of my face. Uh, You don't like the look of my face without the hair on it. So I grew part of the beard back and I've lost the 20 pounds. I've lost the 20 pounds. I'm eager to put some of that back on over the holiday, but I've lost the 20 pounds. I've grown some of the beard back. Maybe I look like Santa's helper now. I look like one of the helpers. I'm not really sure. We, well, over the years, we, we change, don't we? And we change who we are a little bit. We change what we look like. It, it doesn't take long with a beard before people think that you've always had that beard. I really haven't had a beard for all that long. It doesn't take long with a little extra weight before people start thinking that you've always had that little extra weight on. We become known for the, the things that we carry. We become known for the, the, the attitudes that we have. Sometimes we become known for our opinions. You know, We become known for our views. We become known for our likes or our dislikes. And then all of a sudden, someone comes along and they mess up our priorities and suddenly we get known for something new. This past fall, I went back to school again. I decided that it would be interesting to get another degree. And so back in the fall, I started working on my doctorate because I thought it would be nice to legitimately be called Dr. Hammond. Uh, No one's going to call me that except Gerald probably and I'm going to make Trish do it, but I don't think that's going to work out. But anyway, no one's going to call me that, but I thought it'd be nice to have a degree. And, you know, Dr. Hammond has a nice ring to it. And then a month ago, along comes Ruby. And suddenly, I like the sound of Papaw a lot, you know. Is it Dr. Papaw? Can I convince her to call me Dr. Papaw? But, you know, somebody comes into our lives and, and suddenly our, our identity changes. We can change because of the presence of that one person, whether it's a grandchild or or maybe it's a new relationship and suddenly our identity changes just because of that presence of that one person. And maybe it's Jesus. Maybe Jesus comes along and, and our identity changes. We see that in the Christmas story. We see it obviously in Mary in the Christmas story, but don't overlook, don't overlook Joseph. God didn't just choose Mary as his servant. God chose Joseph also. 
And he saw qualities in Joseph that set him apart. And they're qualities that we still look for in people today. Qualities we might need to see in ourselves. And so as we consider Joseph today, as we consider his role in the Christmas story, we might need to ask, first of all, what kind of man was Joseph? I mean, before, before the announcement from the angel, before the coming of Jesus, what kind of man was Joseph? We're going to be in Matthew chapter 1 today. We're going to skip on down to verse 18 uh, and continue on to verse 25. Those blue Bibles in front of you, it's page 807. If you have the Bible app with you, which is a great thing to have. I've got notes and, and scripture references there on the Bible app. Uh, Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Now last week we looked at, jo at uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth. We seldom spend time with Zechariah and Elizabeth at Christmas either. Uh, so we spent some time with them. This week we're looking at Joseph. We give Joseph a little more attention. Um, I think we pay Joseph lip service more than anything. We don't really consider Joseph much. I, uh, there he is in the nativity, but when we got the nativity out last week, Gracie and I were looking at it and I said, Gracie, is this, is this Joseph or is it a shep shepherd? He's got the same hat and he's got a stick. Is it, thank you, Connor. I said, is it Joseph or is it, is it one of the shepherds? You know, we're, we're not always sure. Uh, but in the Christmas story, Joseph has a bigger role than we usually consider. I mean, we begin, and the beginning of Matthew is the genealogy of Jesus, but really it's the genealogy of Joseph. This is Joseph's family. And so much of what we read here at the very beginning is Joseph's story. Beginning in verse 18 of Matthew chapter 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed, to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. There's a few things we might need to explain here because the text is using some words that we also use, but it uses these words in different ways than we normally would use them. Mary is referred to as being betrothed to Joseph. And then in the very next ver verse, it says Joseph is her husband. <laughs> so which is it? Are, are they betrothed or are they married? Are they engaged or are they married? And the answer is definitely, definitely yes. Yes, they are. Both of those things right there. It's different than it is in our world. There's a commitment already that's been made. That commitment has been made. That commitment has not been consummated yet. We might think of it kind of as an engagement, but it's more than an engagement in our world. A contract has already been signed. A relationship has begun. And to break off this commitment would be more than just breaking up, be more than just breaking off an engagement it would require a written note of divorce to end this relationship. Verse 19 says, Joseph was a just man. Some of your Bibles probably say he was a righteous man. It's the same word we saw last week with Zechariah and Elizabeth. It said Zechariah and Elizabeth, they were both just. They were both righteous. It's not just a way of saying that they're good people. You know, it's, it's not just saying Joseph was a good guy. You know, that's, that's not it. It's actually a technical term. It is a very specific term in that, in that culture, in that era. Uh, there were certain requirements 
for you to be a righteous person, for you to be a just person. Being a righteous man it meant that Joseph knew the law. He knew the law of God. He knew the law of the land and he kept it uncompromisingly. Joseph would not have eaten unclean food ever. He also would not have eaten with unclean people ever. Joseph would have never opened his shop and done any work on the Sabbath because that's against the law and he would not have done these things. Uh, he didn't work on the Sabbath. His identity was tied up in this notion of being a just person, a righteous person. This was how he was known in the community. Everyone knew this about him. And so as a just man, as a righteous man who suddenly finds that his betrothed is pregnant and he knows the child is not his, what would the law require him to do? The law said to stone her. The law said you take her out to the, to the, to the, to the wall outside of town. You bring the community outside of the village. You bring them all out to the wall. You line her up. You stand her up against that wall. You line up there with others with rocks in your hands. You loudly proclaim her sin, exactly what she has done so everyone knows what has happened. You throw rocks and you kill her. The Romans didn't let them do that. The Romans said you can't do that anymore. And so the compromise was, you take her out to that same wall where generations earlier her ancestors would have been killed. You take her out to that wall, you stand her up there, you bring her family out, you bring the community out, everyone who knows her is there. You loudly proclaim her sins. You take that certificate of divorce that you've had written up, you wad it up and you throw it at her and you hit her and her relationship is over, her life is over. And every father walking by at that moment with their little girl would turn their little girl and point and say, you see that? That's what happens when you're not a good girl. That's what they do to bad girls. That's what happens if you don't obey the law. Joseph was a just man. He was a righteous man. He was a law keeper. But he chose to divorce her Quietly, He chose to not keep the law. He was unwilling to put her to shame. He resolved to divorce her quietly. And what Joseph shows us is that sometimes, sometimes doing the right thing is the wrong thing. <laughs> and sometimes we've got to do the good thing. Sometimes instead of making the right choice about someone, we have to make the good choice about them. Verse 19, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, that verse is a contradiction. It is a complete contradiction because a just man would keep the law. A just man would do what the law required. A just man would put her to shame. <clears throat> but Joseph chose to do the good thing rather than the right thing. And at that moment, Joseph stopped be being a righteous man. He stopped being a law-abiding Jew. He became a grace-abiding person. Verse 20, But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. 
There's that command again. Do not fear. We saw it last week with Zechariah and Elizabeth. We'll see it again next week and the week after. What did Joseph have to fear? No one was going to put him up against the wall. No one was going to stone him or humiliate him. But Joseph had to fear his reputation, his character. He had to fear who he had worked hard to establish himself to be in the community. Do not fear to do the good thing. Do not fear to believe in her, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will not disappoint you. She will not humiliate you. Do not be afraid. Just because things look bad, do not be afraid to take her as your own. It's an interesting reflection of something that happens in the Old Testament. Back in Ezekiel, <laughs> Ezekiel chapter 16, God God paints this picture of His people Israel, the nation of Israel. And it is not a pretty picture. The way God presents Israel in Ezekiel 16, it is, it is not a pretty picture. Ezekiel 16, beginning in verse 3, God says of Israel, Your origin and your birth are in the land of Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite, your mother a Hittite. And as for your birth... On the day you were born, your cord was not cut. Nor were you washed with water to cleanse you. No one rubbed you with salt. Listen to this. Nor were you wrapped in swaddling clothes. Where have you heard that before? No eye pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you. You were cast out on the open field. You were abhorred on the day you were born. And then God says, and when I passed by and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, I said to you live. I said to you in your blood live. And I made you flourish like a plant of the fields. And you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. It's a pathetic picture. God says to His people, no one wanted you. No one believed in you. No one wanted you. You were a mess. And then he says, and I took you in. I nursed you to help. I, I raised you. I made you beautiful. And yet the picture he paints through the rest of the chapter, it's still not a pretty picture because Israel goes on to reject her God, rejects God as Father, rejects God's love. Israel then goes out and prostitutes itself with, with other nations and with other gods and continues to reject God, continues to fail and disappoint God over and over again. And yet, what does God do? At the end of chapter 16, He reminds them of the covenant. He says in verse, 40, or verse 62, I will establish My covenant with you and you shall know that I am the Lord that you may remember and be confounded. I love that. That you may be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame. When I atone for all that you, for, for you, for all that you have done, declares the Lord God. I love that promise. God says, I'm going to do something that's going to confound you. Something that confounds us all instead of rejecting us, instead of putting us out there on the wall, instead of taking care of it and ending it for us right then. He gives us His Son. He sends His Son. And that's why Joseph is told, do not be afraid to do the good thing. 
instead of the righteous thing. And that's exactly what God does with us. He offers grace. He forgives. He does the good thing. It's not just that Joseph's story teach, it's not just what Joseph's story teaches us. It's what Joseph's character teaches us. Uh, when, when we approach others, when we approach other people and we're not seeking to do the, the right thing, but instead seeking to do the good thing, we're offering them grace, grace that can tra- transform them, grace that makes them new. You see, believing in someone else. Believing in someone else can change the course of their life. Believing in someone else can can change the course of their life. It's not just that though. It changes the course of your heart. Which would you rather be known for? (laughs) Doing the right thing or doing the good thing? The message of Christmas is that God came near What happens when that same grace brings us near to other people? What happens when that same grace brings us near to those who are hurting, to those those who don't know how loved they are, who don't know who they are? What do we give them when we meet them in that place? Look at verse 21 and continuing on. He says of Mary, she will bear a son and you shall... shall call His name Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call His name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Emmanuel. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Verse 21, the angel specifically says to Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus. This is what a father does. A father gives the child his name. There's something personal there. And for Joseph, later in in verse 25, he called his name Jesus. Jesus. It it means Jehovah saves. It means God saves. You know, names names mean something. To give someone their name is to give them their strength. It's to give them their identity. It's to give them their power. To give someone their name in that culture meant that you had set their entire life course for them. Their entire identity. Who they would be and what they would do. There's an old preacher passed away a few years ago. His name was Fred Craddock. I, I always appreciated Fred Craddock's preaching. I learned a lot reading his books and always enjoyed him. For those of you who join us on Wednesday evenings for our, our Bible studies, our group studies that we have, a couple of years ago, I, I've made you watch a couple Fred Craddock sermons. And uh, I wanted you to see how Fred Craddock told stories. One of Craddock's best known stories and one of his most beloved story involves, involves a, a vacation that him and his wife took to Gatlinburg, Tennessee. They went down to Gatlinburg. I should say up to Gatlinburg. They lived in Atlanta at the time. So they went to to Gatlinburg to get away for a while. First day in Gatlinburg, first night, they're at this this restaurant. It is beautiful. It is one of those fancy places, suits and ties only. You couldn't wear your seed corn hat in there, Uncle Ronnie. Suit and tie place, and it's got this beautiful big picture window overlooking the mountain, you know. You see the mountain. 
Craddocks are sitting there. They're enjoying themselves. They're finally starting to relax. And the door opens. And in comes this old man leaning on a cane wearing bib overalls. And he walks around and he greets every table. And Craddock admitted at that moment he thought, great, we came to get away from people and this man's going to come over and bother us. And it didn't take long for him to find the Craddock's table and he walked over and leaning on his cane, he said, where are y'all from? And Fred said, Atlanta. Oh, what are you doing in Atlanta? And Craddock thought to himself, you know, I'm going to confuse him. That'll shut him up. He said, I am a professor of homiletics. He thought he'll not know what a professor of homiletics is. And the old man said, oh, you teach preachers how to preach. Okay, that got his attention. Yeah. He pulled out his chair, plopped himself down, and said, let me tell you a preacher story. He said, you see that mountain out there? I grew up on that mountain. I was born on that mountain. He said, I never knew who my daddy was. My mom never married, and I never knew who my daddy was. And that's quite a stigma for a child to not know who their father is. He said, and kids would tease me all the time. Kids would say, who's your daddy? Who's your daddy? I hated it. So I just wanted to run and hide. I wanted to, wanted to get away from everyone. So I had a grandma who insisted I go to church every Sunday. Grandma took me to church every Sunday. And so I would arrive as soon as church started. I would leave before it ended. Leave right at the very end to get away so no one would have to see me and I wouldn't have to talk to anybody. I said one Sunday I was a little late. One Sunday I was a little late getting out the door and as I'm on my way out, all of a sudden there's a big hand on my shoulder and it spun me around. And there was the preacher standing there, new preacher, big guy, big booming voice. And this preacher looked at me and said, boy, who's your daddy? Those words I had dreaded for 14 years. The whole church went silent because everyone knew this man's story. And the preacher suddenly had a big grin on his face. And he said, oh, I know who your daddy is. I recognize the resemblance. You're a child of the king. He said, he gave me a swat on the rear and he said, now go out there and claim your inheritance. Something about the story sounded familiar to Fred Craddock. And sitting there he said, sir, I would like to know what your name is. The man stood up, leaned on his cane, stood kind of proud. He said, I'm Ben Hooper. Leaning on his cane, he walked out. And Craddock remembered his grandfather telling the story about the poor bastard boy from the mountains of Tennessee who grew up to be a lawyer, who the people of Tennessee went on to elect as their governor two terms in a row. And that man's name was Ben Hooper. Now hear that story. And I wonder how many Ben Hoopers we meet every week. How many Ben Hoopers are in our community? How many Ben Hoopers are in our lives? How many are here in our community and they have no idea of who they are because no one's ever told them? They have no idea. They have no concept of the beauty that God created them with because they've never been told. How many kids are there in our community 
rotten kids, okay? Don't get me wrong. How many rotten kids are there in our community? All they've ever heard is, you're no good. You'll never amount to anything. No one's ever told them. And they don't need us judging them. They don't need us taking them outside of town, taking them to the wall. They don't need us listing their sins for them, whether it's in person or on the Facebook page. They need somebody to be good to them. They don't need us to be right about them. They need us to be good to them. They need us to show them who they really are. Somebody in your life desperately needs you to believe in them. There's someone in your life who desperately needs you to believe in them because they've lost the ability to believe in themselves. So who are you going to believe in this week? Despite the evidence, despite, despite their history, despite the fact that common sense tells you they're just going to let you down again, who are you going to believe in this week? Somebody needs that from you. Come to communion. And I've said it before, this isn't just for us. This isn't just for the people inside this building, the people who join us for the Facebook Live. This isn't just for us to do for ourselves. We do this because we live among people who desperately need to know that Jesus loves them. And so once a week, we come back and we remind ourselves that in our when we were dead in our sins, or as, as Ezekiel 16 would tell us, when we were laying there in our filth because no one cared about us, when we were laying there rejected, thrown and tossed into a field, God gave His very best. He picked us up, and in our blood, He said, live. And that's what He does with Jesus. And that's what we remind ourselves of week after week as we come back to the bread, to the cup. Let me pray. Let's take it. Not just for ourselves, but for those who desperately need us to tell them what they're worth this week and who they really are. Let's pray. Father, we, we love You. We thank You for your, for your attention. We thank You that when... When our sin had separated us from You, You didn't leave us there. You didn't leave us out there outside the wall. Hebrews tells us that Jesus came outside the wall to get us, to take care of us. And so we thank You for that gift. We thank You for that promise. And we thank You that we don't get to save that just for ourselves. and Reserve that only for us because we're special. Lord, it's there because we're all fallen. It's because we've all messed up and because we all desperately need Jesus. Remind us of that today as we take, remind us that the body broken for us wasn't just for us, but for so many others. That the blood shed for us was a blood of a covenant that welcomes in new members of the family. And there might be someone in our lives this week who doesn't feel like they have family, who doesn't feel like they have anyone. I pray the way that we carry Christ from this place will let them know that He is present, that He loves them, and that He welcomes them. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.